2 Samuel chapter 24. After this, we're going to just do a month in the Psalms. And then after a month in the Psalms, we'll do 1 Corinthians, the wildest letter in the New Testament. So it's a brilliant letter. So that's the path forward. That'll take us into January. So how do good hero movies end? Not like the modern ones where they're like existential now. The good old ones like Superman with Christopher Reeves. Remember that? That was the first like superhero movie I watched. How's it end? Right? The missile's gonna come down and it's gonna blow up California at the San Andreas Fault and that's gonna crumble into the sea and Lex Luthor is gonna now have beachfront property, right? Which looking at that, you think, maybe that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> and what does Superman do? He gets the missile and takes it and redirects it and you know, explodes up in the universe. And everyone's happy. Woohoo! How about scriptures? How do heroes end in scripture? Is it the same thing? You know, you've got the, the birth story and then some hardship that they go through and misunderstandings and then relational drama and then a villain, villain appears and he exploits the relationship in order to trap the hero, but in the end, the hero wins. Is that how scripture talks about its heroes? Because we have King David. I think you could argue that King David is the biggest hero of the Old Testament. He's the one that every kid knows the stories of King David. How does his story end? It's pretty ugly, actually. It's closer to an existential movie than the old superhero movies, right? It's ugly. And it's kind of shocking because we all know the story of Goliath, but maybe this is your first time going through First and Second Samuel, and you're being shocked by what King David does. Like, really? I had no idea he was that kind of a guy. It's almost like with your parents, when you discover something about your parents that they did before they had you, right? As a kid, it's hard to imagine your parents ever had a life before you, right? And when you discover, you're like, what? You did what when you were younger? You're in the mafia? What? You're in a hippie nudist colony? Please, I hope there's no pictures. Right? You're in the Bajran Rajneesh cult up in Eastern Oregon? Or the worst of the worst. You work for the IRS? I want out. I'm not in this family, right? Where you kind of discover that, and you're like, I'd never could have thought about that. It's almost like that with David, if you've never read his story. If all you knew was the Goliath story, and then you start reading about Bathsheba and how distant of a parent he is and what he does with Absalom, and then how he kills the Gibeonites, you're just like, my goodness, this guy's a hero? And it's almost more shocking with David, because it's not like youthful indiscretion when it happens to him. His first 50 years are brilliant. It's Midas touch. It's the last 20 years where he gets the Murphy touch, where everything goes south. He ends poorly. It's a warning. I'm 50. It's a warning. You are never too old to be a moron. <laughs> right? 
Don't think because you've got 50 years under your belt that you are safe from being a foolish idiot. <laughs> no way, right? There are plenty of warnings in the Bible about old fools. So it's a brutal chapter, a brutal ending really to David's life. There's a little bit in 1 Kings, but it's just a transition to Solomon. This is his period and it's a brutal chapter. So let's go. Again, the anger of Yahweh, anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is the covenant name of God. For some reason, it's now, we can't call God by his real name. Moses asks him his name. He says, my name is Yahweh. And yet we don't actually translate his name as Yahweh. Instead, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So I just change it in my own reading. Again, if someone says, my name is, I will use that name. So again, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them saying, go, number Israel and Judah. If you were here last week, chapter 23 was brilliant. It's all the accomplishments of David. It's the people that he has mentored and raised up from the people that were cast off. They were depressed and disillusioned and they joined David in a cave when he was nothing. And because of his leadership skills and his willingness to be with them through thick and thin, they become these mighty, incredible men. And it's the hall of fame of David, chapter 23. It's amazing. It's fun. And now chapter 24, the crash. Don't you know that's life? We have the hall of fame moments and there almost always seems to me that after a Hall of Fame mountaintop moment, there's going to become an attack and it's not going to be good. So you've got to be ready. No matter what age you are, you always have to be ready. Do you think you're secure right now? Because you got some cash in the bank. You own your house. You know how tenuous that is? You know? Anyone in here invest in Bitcoin because you couldn't lose? Yeah, people went from billionaires to bankrupt in one week because you can lose. Be careful. David here, man, it looked like great. Chapter, chapter 20 would have been a wonderful ending to 2 Samuel, but it doesn't. Instead, we have this. And you read verse one and you just have to say, what? Again? It's happened more than once? Oh yeah. Again? The anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel? What? Why is he angry? I have no idea. The Bible never tells us. Normally, God gets angry because of injustice or unrighteousness, breaking the Torah, idolatry. Those are the reasons, but it just doesn't tell us. It just says God was angry. Here's how it gets even stickier. There are two books that tell the story of David. First and second Samuel, and then first Chronicles. Listen to how first Chronicles puts this same verse. It's first Chronicles chapter 21, verse one. Then Satan stood against Israel 
and incited David to number Israel. What? Right? What is going on right here? We don't know why God's angry. In 1 Chronicles 21, it says, the he here, he incited David against them, appears to be Satan. You're just going, what is going on at the end of David's life? The more I read the Bible honestly, the more times I find myself saying, what? Right? I'm dead serious. I've read it a lot. And this isn't the only account of this kind of dual thing that seems to happen. You have the New Testament. When Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is talking about what happened to him, he goes, because of the abundance of revelation that was given to me, because of everything that I know and learned about the grace of Jesus Christ, because of that, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, and I prayed three times, take this away from me. And Jesus answered me and said, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. You gotta say, what is that? You got this messenger of Satan, Jesus saying, nah, you're keeping it. Paul's like, please take it away. Is there some other way? I don't like a messenger of Satan attached to me. Can you give me like a really loser friend that always makes fun of me? Like, I don't like this. And he's like, nope. Like, what? Read the Bible. It's the most fascinating book in the world. So who do you blame for the, re we're gonna just read catastrophe in this chapter. And you gotta stand back and be like, who's to blame? You blame God? Do you blame Israel? Do you blame David? Is it the devil made me do it? It's a mysterious chapter. So God's angry. He incites David through Satan to number the people of Israel. Verse two. So the king said to Joab, we've met him, we know him, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may Yahweh your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king will see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's world word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the armies. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. This cracks me up. You guys know Joab? Good guy or bad guy? He's a bad guy. He's got zero spirituality. He's a thug that just murders people. Like anyone that uh, at all threatens his position, he just murders them. Like in cold blood, murders them, kisses them, and then stabs them in the guts, right? This guy is not a good man. And he's saying, David, this is a really bad idea. That's the guy that's telling David, don't do this, the thug. It's like Genghis Khan saying, you know, that's just going too far. Let's not do that. I guess it's amazing to me. David, this guy that you know is no good is telling you, 
don't do this. And all the commanders of the army are joining with him saying, don't do this. It actually surprises me that David hasn't learned to listen to people warning him because his previous big sin in chapter 11, when he sees this woman and wants to invite her home and his counselors tell him she is another man's wife and he ignores that and he just detonates his life with it. Won't listen. I wonder as I read this, if God was actually giving David a Moses opportunity. Remember when Moses was dealing with the golden calf and goes apart and meets with God and God is angry at Israel again. That's the again. And God said to Moses, I'm going to destroy all the people down there and I'm gonna restart my project with you. No Abraham, no Isaac, no Jacob, it's gonna be Moses, Father Moses. You guys know that story? And Moses says, time out, no way, God. Don't do that. And God says, awesome. Because what God actually wanted was Moses to intercede for the people, setting up a category that God is looking for in his people to make intercession for others. So Moses responds brilliantly. I wonder personally if David was supposed to respond like that, to say, no, I can't do this, God. I can't number the people. God said, perfect, thank you. And then he gets warnings now from Joab and all the commanders, don't do this. And he just persists. For me personally, it reminded me that the older you get, the more you need to listen to people. Because we're like, wet cement. And the older we get, the harder we get. And the harder it is for us to change and to listen to people. And that means we have to make a really specific and dedicated effort to really ponder what people are saying around us. And sometimes the advice to us will come from the most unlikely of places, the Joabs in our life. Are you kidding? That moron? Are you kidding my boss? My employee, my brother-in-law, my wife, right? Those are the ones we really need to listen to. Now, why would Joab say this? Why would he say like, time out, don't do this, David? Was it wrong to take a census of the people? Exodus 30, 12 actually gives the right, if you take a census, do it like this, make sure everyone pays a half shekel. If they don't pay the half shekel, look out, a plague's coming. Maybe, David said, you know what? Don't worry about the half shekel thing. Just number the people. And so that's why they're worried. Or it could be, I think, more that we don't get the whole conversation here. And David is wanting, that's why Joab answers, add to the people a hundred times. David is wanting to prove how powerful he was. It was a moment of pride. A moment of, look how great I become. Look at what I have done. John, it was a prideful moment. It was in David the whole time. And Satan just cranked the amp to 10. And now he goes off, won't listen to anybody. And they go and start this count. So verse five says, they crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora. 
and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah in Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. That's a long census. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people of the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. So step back for a moment. God is angry, doesn't tell us why, designs this test that David fails. There's a satanic aspect to it of the numbering of the people. And you're just kind of left now by verse nine just saying, what? We're not told why the anger is there. We're not told why the census is bad. And it's mysterious, is it not? Here's the thing. God does not have to explain himself to me. Do you know that? God is under no obligation to explain what he does to me or you, right? God does not work for me. I work for him. And the backsliding heart always judges God based on the mystery, based on the questions, based on what God does not tell us. But the tender heart that loves God always judges him based on what we know about him. And so you can sit in condemnation of God. What is he angry about? Why is he doing this? And I know that's my own backsliding heart to mystery. Or when I'm tender toward God, then what happens in my heart is I base my judgment on what I already know about him. That's what I do. In every one of us, we, we need mystery because it is only in questions and it's only in mystery that you and I exercise this thing called faith. When I know everything, when it's all explained and I've got it all detailed out, there's no faith to that. And Hebrews eleven six 6 says this, without faith. It is impossible to please God. So I have a giant folder in my own head that just says mystery. I don't know. I don't know those things. But I do know some stuff. I do know that God often uses sin to judge sin. He'll use evil to judge evil. When Israel goes evil and they start to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch, God brings down a more evil place called Babylon to judge the evil in his own people. That God very often will use evil to judge evil. And I know the same thing about me, that God will give me over to evil if I want it. Romans chapter one, read that carefully. God gave them over to something. For what purpose? 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Give him over to Satan that the flesh might be destroyed, but his spirit might be saved. Sometimes God gives us over to 
just debase things. Why? To get us to the very bottom so that our spirits can be saved. It's almost like parents sometimes, you have to let your kids fail. You have to let them try things and you have to let them fail. Hopefully you do that when they're inside the confounds of your safe home where they can recover, where they don't get a rap sheet or something, right? You gotta let them fail sometimes. Why? So they learn and so they grow and they become who they're supposed to be coming, right? But we know enough. We know that Jesus loved us enough to die for us. Those are things we know. And the tender in heart always base their judgment of God on what they know and not what they do not. I think that's what you're seeing right here. So here's how this thing works out, verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Yahweh, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says Yahweh, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall, they bear, shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. There's gonna be consequences. He sinned, and there's consequences. He repents, still consequences. And it says, verse 14, David's heart struck him. Here's the report. Something in that report convicts him. And he's like, oh, I've blown it. Has that ever happened to you? You want to cut him up and tell us about it? I'm kidding. <laughs> All of us, right? Again, you come to this and you're like, what is going on? There's still more unanswered questions. Here's what we know. You just go back to what we know. David sinned. Maybe it's in this Israel-Judah number, right? Israel has 800,000 valiant men. Judah has 500,000 valiant men. We've already seen in 2 Samuel, there is bad blood between these two groups. They've been close to civil war over and over in 2 Samuel. And maybe it was this moment where David gets this report and he goes, oh, they're almost equal. Oh no, the seeds of national division are already here and I've just contributed to it. Because Judah's only one tribe and it's now almost big enough to fight off Israel. Oh no, 
So what does he do? He confesses. Immediately he confesses. The giant difference between David and Saul is real simple. David, when he's convicted of sin, he didn't play the victim. He didn't try to blame someone else. He didn't ignore it. He very quickly got on his face and repented. I've blown it. God, you know this. When your heart strikes you in your own personal sin, how do you respond? I think it's one of the best barometers for whether I'm religious or whether I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Because religious people, when they repent, when they are found out in their junk, here's what happens to religious people. You think, oh no, I've lost something. I thought I was better than I actually am. I'm actually not that good. And so you feel like you've gone backwards and you're condemned. But for believers in Jesus, repentance should do something else to us. It's why I think David is always quick to repent because he prays Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the paths everlasting. So when something gets exposed in David, he knows this. It's already been there for my whole life. It's just been underneath the surface and now circumstances have just brought it up. And now I have the opportunity to deal with it, be cleansed from it, grow and move on. Like it's not joyful, but there is a aspect of repentance where you're like, praise God, okay. I can now be cured from this thing that was underneath, that's part of my character and could possibly destroy me if it's allowed to grow in me and God has exposed it now and I have the opportunity to be confessing and cleansing so it doesn't ruin me anymore. So I'm made into the man, the woman that God wants me to be made into. That's why David was quick to repent. And God sends this guy named Gad the prophet I like Gad the prophet. He's not a new guy to David. He's got massive coupons in David's life to come bring this really hard news. He joined David back in 1 Samuel 22 when David was a nobody, running for his life, had a price on his head, Saul was trying to kill him. That's when Gad joined him. Wasn't helping Gad's career at all. It was out of friendship and love that Gad said, I'm with you, bro, even in the hard times. And now he's been with David for probably 30 and 40 years, a good friend to David. And God sends him. And he says, listen, there's a smorgasbord of punishments for you. Bad, bad, and bad. Choose. And David's like, is there a fourth option? Because I don't like any of these options right now. And he chooses the one that he knows God's behind. To me, this is a brilliant step of faith. And there are times in every life when you've got bad, bad, and bad choices, and that's it. And it's in those times, in the valley of the shadow of death, that you have an opportunity that you will never have in eternity. Because in, in eternity, all shadows are gone, all hard's gone, all bad's gone. It's only in this brief little life 
that we have the opportunity in pain and in darkness and in mystery and in question to say yes to God. It's only right now. I have faith in you even in the darkness. It's only in this life. That opportunity is gone. The opportunity to be refined in that way and transformed in that way is only available when there is dark decisions, when there's mystery, when there's questions. And David here says, I'll take God. I'll take God. Not three years of me trying to figure out how to cure a famine. Not three months of me turning back to myself because I'm a warrior. I'll take three years of faith in God. How brilliant is that? And it's only in this life that we can make that choice. And David does it right there. So, verse 15. Yahweh sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, Yahweh relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David spoke to Yahweh when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Another giant. What? What? Right? 70,000? What? And then verse 16 says that God relented. What does he relent from? His anger at Israel, causing David to sin, judging both Israel and David, killing 70,000 people, right? What does he relent from? This is one of the most mysterious sections of scripture. And in any ministry, what you do is you come back to what you know. Number one, we know this. God doesn't make anyone sin. James chapter one. He did not make David sin. David had something in him. Satan amplifies it. God removed his hand of protection. I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but David ultimately is responsible. He over and over says, I've sinned, I've sinned. No one makes you sin. I think he could have done a Moses thing in Exodus that could have been what God was actually after. But David sins. So number one, God doesn't make anyone sin. Number two, we know this, God is long-suffering. So whatever was happening in Israel, that it says again, God was angry with Israel. He had waited a long, long time, sending them prophets, giving them the Torah, giving them sacrifice and priests and warnings, causing their hearts to be struck like David's, and they refused to repent whenever, year after year after year after year. And so God, throughout scripture, does two things with sin. He redeems it or he removes it. And those are the only two options. 
God's holiness motivates him from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. God's holiness motivates him to redeem. But if humanity stands with closed fists, rejection of that redemption saying, no, 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 we will not have this man rule over us, then eventually God says, enough is enough. And removes it. And God picks up dirty tools with holy hands over and over in scripture, just like he does right here. Number three, sin is a grenade that always hurts the bystanders. Do you know that? That's what sin is. Satan maximizes the effects of sin. Every child that grew up with an alcoholic dad understands that they didn't do anything. They're just kids. Did their dad's alcoholism affect them? Oh, my goodness. Right? Because sin's a grenade. It always hits other people. Do bad leaders affect a nation? Oh, man. Mao, Pol Pot, Stalin, Lenin, Hitler, maybe someone else. (laughs) David in her story, right? Yes. Bad leaders cause big problems because sin's a grenade, 100%. Number four, we know this. Habakkuk 3 verse 2, he prays this. He says, because he knows judgment's coming on Israel. And so Habakkuk prays this. He says, in your wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. I'm 50 years old now. I grew up in a time, it seemed to me, and I was a kid, in the 70s and 80s, where it was just a free-for-all for spanking children. Anyone else feel like that from the 70s? Like, they still spank kids in public school when I went to them. How crazy is that, right? You get a spanking at school. Like, what in the world? And I knew this. If I got spanked at school, they would call my mom, I would get home, and my mother would spank me. Then she would immediately call an elder of the church. They'd come over that evening and they would spank me. We called it the trifecta, right? It was losing the trifecta, right? And there was no calling DHS back then. Because if you called DHS, they'd come over and be like, what did he do? Give me the paddle, I'm spanking him too, right? You're just like, ah, I would have loved to go to a corner and think about something. Like, please give me that punishment, right? Didn't happen. Only if I was knocked out. What's Matt doing? He's thinking about something. Leave him alone, right? So just a whole different world. And they would always say this, Matt, this hurts me more. (laughs) I can't even say it. It's so ridiculous. I'm like, then let's switch. I don't want you to hurt that way. I want to save you from the pain, right? Here's what I know. Only God can say, this hurts me more than it hurts you because God's anger has always been tempered with mercy, as it is right here. He relents. There's only one time in history when there was no mercy, unless God disrobed himself of heavenly power and hung on a cross, and there was no mercy. Only God can say, this hurts me more than it hurts you, because there was no mercy. That's what we know. Yeah, mystery in this. 
But man, we know some stuff. I'm guilty of my own sin. I'm, I'm it. God is long suffering. My own sin can be a grenade and hurt all these people. And ultimately, sin hurts God a lot more than it's hurt me. A lot more. So verse 18, then Gad came that day to David and stood, said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as Yahweh commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. Now, there's a whole bunch in here, okay? He is a Jebusite. The Jebusites have been enemies of Israel all the way back to Moses, 400 years of it. David was the final guy that finally got them out of Jerusalem. So he is a historic enemy of Israel. And all of a sudden, he sees 10 black armor-plated suburbans coming up toward him. He's like, oh no, out pops the king. What's he thinking? I'm doomed, right? I'm doomed. But you on your five acres in Murphy, all of a sudden, ah, you're a MAGA supporter. There's 10 suburbans that show up. Ah, what's gonna happen to me? Right? It's like that. This guy thinks I'm doomed. And take me out, face down. And Aruna said, why has the Lord, the king, come to his servant? Am I going to die? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to Yahweh that the plague may be averted from the people. And Aruna said to David, let my Lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may Yahweh your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to Yahweh my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So Yahweh responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted <clears throat> from Israel. David goes up to this guy, buys the property. Guy tries to give it to him, says, no way, I will not offer that which costs me nothing. You can't have a Christianity that costs you nothing. Do you know that? You can't. It was tried. It was called the seeker-sensitive movement in the 80s and 90s. There was a report done on it, the big ones, the Willow Creek one. And at the end of it, they said, it's been a colossal failure because you can't outsource your faith to someone else. You can't outsource it to a church. You can't outsource it to your parents. You can't outsource it to a book. You can't outsource it to a DVD series. You have to own it and it will cost you. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you effort. It'll cost you friendships. It'll cost you, but the payment is out of this world. That's the goal. 
And David knows this. I'm not going to offer something to God that costs me nothing. Right? And so what happens is he buys this little section of land, makes an offering on it. And that little section of land ends up being where the temple is built. It's like the ultimate in Judo theology. You guys know Judo theology? Judo is a martial art where you use the momentum of your enemy against him, right? So uh, Doug is sick and tired of hearing me preach this message and he just comes out of the booth and comes running up toward me and I know Judo and like four other Japanese words. So he comes at me and I use his momentum and I just throw him through this guitar, right? That's judo. It's using the momentum of your enemy against him. And that's what you see throughout scripture. Judo theology. Bad situation turns into the temple mount where Jesus Christ himself, revelation tells us, will rule the nations from this spot. That's what God does. That God is great enough to take our sin, which he does not cause, and to use that as an occasion for his grace. And that's the whole story of David right there. David is not perfect. End of his life is bad. But over and over, God is so good and so powerful that he uses David's mistakes and his sins as an occasion for his grace. Sin with Bathsheba, Solomon comes out of it. We have Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and 27 chapters of Proverbs, right? That that is the God that we serve. That's the hope I take in this mysterious section. I don't understand it all, but I understand enough about my God to know this. Even in my foibles, even in my mistakes, he is great enough and good enough to work all things as occasions of his grace. And it makes me trust him that much more. And so Jesus today, I am more amazed every time I read the story of David, how you hold him up so high. How over and over you declare he's the benchmark for every other king in this nation. And the only way you can do that is because you look through the eyes of grace and mercy. I pray that every person in here would know even if they have a history like David, that only God is able to look at you and look at me through eyes of grace and mercy and elevate us up so that we become the people that are the kings and queens that rule with him for eternity. You are so good. May we be a people who receive your goodness and your grace as gifts that can never be earned and can never be deserved. And may we respond like David saying, I won't offer things that cost me nothing. You get my all because only you deserve it. 
That's the goal of this book. And so may we go from here tonight both perplexed and blessed by the life of David. May we go from here with the tension that his life causes us. And may we go from here convinced of your greatness and your power and your ability to work all things together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. And I pray this in your name. Amen.